Welcome. I'm an international adoptee and host of the Anna Ginger Show. I believe that we all experience adoption in our lives. We actively choose the people, values, and experiences that create who we are and who we are yet to be. And this is why I invite you to listen to the guest and creative content that guides us to know that we each have a home in this world, cradled in the belief that we belong, that we are worthy, and that we are loved. So stay tuned and you may discover your own adoption story. Now recently, I came across this article titled, How Adoption Affects the Experience of Adult Intimate Relationships and Parenthood, a systematic review by these individuals named Julia Field and Rachel Pond. And in the article, they write, loss is a fundamental issue for adoptees. Throughout adoptees' lives, some individuals also face difficulties with separation, abandonment, trust, betrayal, rejection, self-worth, grief, and and identity development. Whew, that's a lot for an adoptee. My goodness gracious. So when I read that and thought about my own relationships and how I navigate through those and how adoption is connected to that... I do think about um, the most important relationship I have, and that is with the person who wrote this statement. So this person wrote, college is a time of great opportunity for discovery about identity, culture, and community. As someone who has been around college campuses for over 40 years, I recognize that learning about diversity and social justice issues is not about a destination, but a journey filled with amazement, deep joy, and profound personal challenge. My own experiences, often in the company of students with rich classroom and out-of-class conversations to international to intentional adventures in small rural communities in Africa and Latin America and inner city and poor rural communities in the United States have opened minds to the stark challenges associated with structural inequalities. But my experiences with diversity have also helped me recognize the gifts and strengths of the individuals and communities that are often labeled deficient. As an educator, I believe my role is to expose students to people and ideas that help them love who they are, to learn about, acknowledge, and celebrate the gifts of others, and to develop the tools and skills to shape local and global communities that honor everyone's potential. Now, who said this? It is Dr. Peter Mather, also known as my hubba hubba hubby. And so how could I not fall in love and marry somebody that writes a diversity statement like that? So welcome, Pete, a.k.a. hubba hubba hubby, a.k.a. Dr. Mather. So I'd give an introduction of you um, with your diversity statement, but what do you think our listeners should know about you? Sure. Well, I, um, as you alluded to, I'm a professor at Ohio University. I'm in the higher education um, program here and we train university administrators. My own background professionally is is um, working as a student affairs administrator, so as an advisor for students, and then I ultimately moved into a faculty role. But before that, uh, I grew up in rural communities in southern Indiana. Um, we moved periodically, and I always was, I, so I experienced some being uprooted and um, building new social networks where I was from time to time. I'm, I have two birth brothers and one adopted sister. So I know the theme is adoption of your show. So I um, come into this having that experience as a sibling of an adoptee as well. 
Yeah, well, I think one of the things that you wrote in your diversity statement that you believe that your role is to expose students to people and ideas and help them love who they are. And as someone that has come into my life as my uh, partner, I think that is something that you have done for me is help me love who I am and want to continually learn about life and the world. And so I just appreciate that in you, Pete. But you you were talking about your sister, Linda, who was an adoptee. And so what was it like having an adopted sister? Yeah, I, well, I remember I was about 13 or 14 when Linda was adopted. She was six years old at the time. And it was a surprise um, to um, my brothers and I when um, Linda came into the family. And I mean, first of all, I, I think there definitely was excitement about that. I will say one of the unique things that I remember that stands out to me is that we were in a in a very homogeneous community, an all-white community, and Linda um, was Mexican-American and um, was fairly dark-skinned. And I do remember kind of the experience of, I remember walking to school with her and um, and there was then this was in the early 1970s and I remember people yelling racial epithets at her um, ki- other kids and just how um, eye-opening and alarming and disturbing that was to me at that time and so that that I remember so I, I recall being very protective of her um, but also, I remember that it's kind of an ambivalent experience because I also remember dealing with my own experience of sharing um, the affection of my parents with a new sibling, and so that, that I so I remember some specific incidents of um, kind of struggling with that a little bit as a thirteen or fourteen year old and having having that new experience and. But then I also appreciated later, I think, having a young sister. My other two siblings were brothers. I was in the middle of of, um, of the sibling relationship. And then when Linda came, I, I remember really appreciating having a younger sister and the life and spirit she brought into the household. Yeah, I think it's complex, just any kind of sibling relationship where there's that sibling rivalry, probably with your brothers as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then um, also, I wonder, like, your protective stance for Linda and her experience with others, seeing her being an outsider and different, do you think that informed who you are as a as an educator and as somebody who's so passionately um, interested in changing the world for the better? Undoubtedly. Um, I mean, I do recall, and my dad was a pastor, and this was even when I was in early elementary school. Um, it was a time of, it was the 1960s, it was time of civil unrest and um, and civil rights, and the Vietnam War were present. And I remember my, um, my dad having us in our Sunday school carry war protest signs around the neighborhood in this conservative um, community. So, and also being, inviting um, people of color, um, 
the head of the Indianapolis Urban League came down to our small town and and spoke at the church. I remember some rebellion against that, but I guess that's to say that I um, certainly had other influences that shaped my feeling about social justice and my um, my devotion to dealing with issues of social justice, but certainly that very personal experience. I think it was the the first really personal experience I had was um, having a, a sister who was a person of color and feeling that connection to her um, certainly was a new dimension of my my um, education, I guess, in in social justice. Yeah, and then as I was reading this article that I found with adoptees facing those difficulties with separation, abandonment, trust, betrayal, rejection, self-worth, grief, and identity development, do you think of those things when you think about your sister and about some of the things that she may have struggled with? Sure. I mean, I think the incident I talked about or the incidents I talked about, but also she was, I think, five or six when she was taken away from her mother and her other siblings, her birth siblings. And so she had this, you know, certainly strong memories and powerful memories of being uprooted. Um, Then she went into a foster home. She was in one foster home for a few months before um, she was adopted into, into the family that I was part of. Yeah, and I'm just gonna fast forward a couple of years because she actually wanted to find her biological family and connected with them. Yeah, she she went through periods of time when that was really important to her. And she would do that. And then she would, um, she'd find some members of the family. I think there were six kids. And then, of course, her parents. And she'd find pockets. She'd spend some time with them. It was really important to her to find them. And then I know sometime, at some point there was some disillusionment with the connection and or the lack of connection um, that she was hoping for there. Mm-hmm. And so you take the, that personal connection to adoption with your sister, and then you have, um, and you're teaching in higher education, and if you have a student that comes into your um into your classroom and has some of those issues. And when you think about student um, identity development or student development theory and things like that, how do you think that college students, like using Linda's story or my story, how does that affect somebody's development? Well, I, I think one thing that I see our students being increasingly aware of and naming is trauma in their lives. and. Um, and, you know, obviously there are different, many different sources of trauma. You, you open your show by talking about everybody has a sort of adoption experience. And some of those can be, obviously, there can be strong love and powerful positive aspects of that. But um, I think the kind of experiences we were just talking about with my sister is, um, is tra- trauma experiences. And so... I think um, that's really important, but it's also important to understand not every adoption story is the same, not every, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in my class talking about identity and that identity experiences people have and also intersectional identities. Um, but 
there's no singular path for any identity group. And so that's really important to know. But on the other hand, it's also important to understand um, the trauma that um, themes of trauma that come often with certain kind of identities that people have in society in certain contexts. And so um, this this last time I taught student development theory, I had a 10-year gap between um, the last two times I taught that class in particular and in so much, um, there's so much new literature about identity and intersectionality in that, over that period of time. And so that came into the class a lot in terms of thinking about, um, you know, how not everybody's path is the same, but how certain um, identities shape, do shape people's experiences and realities. Well, you went on a sabbatical, and that's how we met. But I'm gonna, I'm just, I'll get back to that. But I wanted to say on your website, um, mapping the future of student affairs, you talk about how your work in the decades of work in higher education, you've witnessed substantial changes in society, and in the work of student affairs and higher education professionals, increased attention to diversity, inclusion, and social justice and technology adoption, among many things. So, what do you hope for your students, and when you think about and you're right, we talk about how everyone has an adoption story to some extent. What do you hope you're, for your students um, and, and as you think about the future of higher education? One of the themes that I think about that I think is related to this identity theme is, and it's not talking about sort of big higher education, but talking about um, the experience of students in higher education and my students in particular. I I, and I am trying to figure this out too. Um, so it's you know there there are challenges that we all have with our students or, or professors and kind of figuring out these kind of balances. But I want my students and me to understand. On the one hand, there are structural issues and systemic issues that impact our students. I also want us to understand that student agency and personal agency matters. So trying to kind of help people understand I can make a difference in my life while there are kind of systemic things that sometimes are oppressive or marginalizing or minoritizing that um, can be painful and we can also work to change. I love that. Well, one of the things, many, many, many things that I fell in love with you, Pete, was um, one of your opening lines in your website, too, that you're an adventurer. And you certainly are an adventurer and that you are even willing to come to Ames, Iowa. So would you like to share a little bit about how we were connected? Sure. Well, I first learned about you through one of my doctoral students, um, Hope, who knew you when she was a child or at least an early adolescent um, because you two had been connected um, because of because both of you shared uh, a story of being a transnational adoptee. And so um, Hope put us in touch with each other. And I will say, this is not to disparage Hope, but I didn't always trust Hope's judgment. <laughs> but in this case, um, it was wise to trust her judgment. And she um, connected us. And so we first found each other on LinkedIn and investigated our profiles, and then we ended up 
having some LinkedIn connection. We moved to Facebook Messenger and on to phone conversations, and um, and so we did we did that several weeks before we actually met. But I I just love the connection and all the shared values we had, and and we're both adventurous souls. And so um, I was really excited when we got a chance to meet in person. Yeah, and Hope, um, I did. I knew knew her dad when we uh, served on a board for Habitat for Humanity together. And when Hope reached out to me to connect us, not only did she want to, uh, because she had great interest in your love life and wanted to make sure that you're happy, Pete. (laughs) That is true. Um, But also because she had written a paper uh, here at Ohio University about her adoption experience. So she was adopted from a Japanese orphanage. She remembers even at four years old, the Americans coming through to look at the uh, children. She remembered that one of the, um, the the persons that worked at the orphanage told her soon-to-be adoptive parents that she was retarded and that she would probably would never be able to make it past um, a certain grade level. And so for me, I felt when I read that story, of just pain and just try to figure her story out that she was really pursuing in some ways I felt uh, pursuing her her degree because she wanted to prove that she was smart she came on the show at KHOY and you and I had that connection because on Tuesdays when I recorded the show at KHOY and the show with uh, Hope um, you um, would create community within um, Ames, Iowa, and and made these friendships and these connections that I never would have done on my own and expanded my community in in Ames, too. And so I want to thank Hope for bringing us together, and also you, Pete, for bringing um, community in my own home state uh, while I was doing the KHOI radio gig, and then here at WOUB, it just expands that circle. Now, one of the things I do on the show, um, and, and not only you're an event but you're also a musician and a creative artist, I think, and just a poet at heart. And because I believe that creative interchanges can help us discover how we can be and become our best selves, I always reserve a little bit of time to connect to artistic expressions of our shared experiences. And so, Pete, you brought something uh, to share with our listeners to create this creative interchange. What did you bring? I brought Mary Oliver's poem, Journey, which is one of her most popular poems. Are you ready for me to read it, or should I give a little background? I give a little background. It's all your time. Okay. Well, I I will say when I was on my adventure, the same adventure where I met you, Anna, I I really fell more in love with poetry and art and, and music. I was spending a lot of time outdoors in beautiful places, and um, and I I really found that um, academic language can't really express the kind of experience that you have in places like this. And, and so I chose this poem, um, Journey, I think it relates a lot to a general human experience of, of emancipation. We all, um, I guess one common experience all children have is that we learn, and rightfully, for safety reasons when we're, ki- when we're kids, that there is somebody who has more knowledge and wisdom than we do, and it helps to keep us safe, right? And so we all need to kind of move past that to some extent to be um, 
to to be ad adults in society and to to be full operating members of of society. And I think about the comment you made um, at, at the beginning. We choose the people, the values, and experiences, and it takes some of us a while to choose that for ourselves. So that's what I think about with this poem. So I'll go ahead and read it now. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voice behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save. Oh, thank you. And that was Mary Oliver's poem, Journey, that you just recited. And I'm going to um, connect that to you writing in your di diversity statement. I recognize that learning about diversity and social justice issues is not about a destination, but a journey filled with amazement, deep joy, and profound personal challenge. And so I think about that and your reading of that poem about how it is a journey for us to be able to continually try to be and become our best selves. And again, Pete, I know that this is, um, so I'm saying this publicly on the radio, that you really do help me become a, a better person with all of your gifts and your talents and, uh, talents and the way that you view the world and the way that you are in the classroom. In my job at OU, I, I'm always talking with other faculty members and staff members about why I love my job is because I think of you, Pete, and the dedication you have to your students to be um, the best that they can be to be loved and to be their best selves. And it's challenging, especially these days in the classroom of post-COVID days in the classroom and all the struggles that are going on in the world. And you are one of those persons that I just greatly admire and glad that you are part of my journey, Pete. Well, I love us being on this journey together, Anna. Yeah, that's good because we're married. So <laughs> you're stuck with me now. Ha ha ha. Having poetry in the classroom and the curriculum, yeah, yeah. why is that important? Yeah. Well, we're, you know, I mentioned earlier, we're preparing people who are going to be administrators at universities. And one of my essays I wrote on my journey was, we need more poets and artists alongside the managers of the university. And what I, what I want us to keep in mind is there is important work for people who can manage, that people can be good administrators who know what to do with budgets and so forth. But sometimes we can lose sight of the spirit of the university and the purpose of the university. So my analogy out on the trail was um, we have people like um, National Park Service and so forth that, that create trails that we can stay on and keep us safe, but we never lose sight from those trails of the beauty of the places where we are. We see valleys, we see mountaintops, we 
see just the beauty of the the trees around us and foliage and um but i think sometimes that universities i'm afraid that the spirit of what the university is the search for truth and beauty can be obscured sometimes by um, the business of the university by too much concern for grades and grading and those kinds of things and um and i think we're in a place where we need more creativity from people to solve the very daunting issues of the of the world that we're in. Um, we're in a, a rapidly changing culture, and um, the the ways that have the methods that have that have worked in the past for us sometimes to adapt to the world are not the methods of the future. So, I think poetry, music can is really important for helping to prepare students who are going to lead universities our students who are going to be shaping future students lives and minds um and really preparing them to 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 and equipping them with those kind of um mindsets perspectives values etc that that are going to make a change that can make the change in the world that we need. What would you ask our listeners to do to create a world where everyone can feel that they belong, that they matter, and that they're loved? Yeah, I think the thing I'm trying to do more and more with with my students, because there is a big generational divide. Um, I They don't say it out loud, but I think uh, I, they could legitimately say to me, okay, boomer. Um, <laughs> Because <laughs> technically I'm a boomer, and so I, there's a big generational divide. But I more and more want to understand and listen to um, their stories, and and I mean I I do want them to listen to my story. Sometimes they have to because I'm um, in front of the classroom. But I, I I really want us to listen to each other's stories because, and I've seen. I mean, I just saw the generational divide show up in another space that I was part of in this last week. And I I just think it's really important for all of us to be open, to hear each other's stories, to hear um, the gifts that people bring and the gifts that people need um, from from others. So that's I, I think that's mostly what I want to share or did was i supposed to ask a question you weren't i think i messed that up (laughs) you you did did a great job i love that what you were saying is that we need to do a better job of listening and that storytelling component is so important because i think when you were um experiencing what you were talking about in the last week and i also think about some of the conversations we've had with our neighbors that when we share each other's stories it becomes personal and less about becoming about who's right and who's wrong, but how can we connect to each other? And what do we, what can we learn from each other if we do a little more listening and a little less talking, although I'm talking right now. And I do want to say uh, thank you so much, Dr. Pete Mather, a.k.a. my hubba hubba hubby, for spending time with me and us today so we can learn more about you and your story. Appreciate you sharing that. A thank you to Adam Rich with WEB for engineering and editing today's program. Our subject matter expert is Dr. Melissa Rizzo, and our storytelling consultant is Zoe Lambert. 
Our creative and editing team includes Maddie, Maya, Alexa, Linnea, and Mark. And our music producer is Nick Kazernas, who has been writing a genre-twisting songs for over 30 years, including this show's theme song, Way to Me. And I am your host, Anna Ginja, signing off with a reminder that the key to unlocking all things good in this world is love. Here, you are loved and you are home. Always a friend and fan, this is Anna Ginja wishing you days filled with love, laughter, and peace. <laughs>